Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm your host, Abby Martin. The House and Senate recently presented war budgets consisting of tens of billions of dollars more than the Defense Department had requested. And the lawmakers pushing it through have received millions in campaign contributions from defense contractors, according to Open Secrets. While the military-industrial complex churns unabated and bombs drop across the Middle East in our names, Citizens in America continue to be victimized by economic warfare and terrorized by militarized police forces. Rarely do we connect the wars at home and abroad on a systems level, while deconstructing the toxic neoliberal ideology that dominates global policy in the 21st century. So here to do just that, I'm joined now by Eugene Perrier, organizer with the Answer Coalition and author of Shackled and Chained. Eugene, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, You just gave a talk at Spring Rising about the connection between war at home and abroad. Uh, First, begin by talking about what the war is being waged against the people in this country. Well, I mean, I think that what we see on on a number of different levels is... You know, violence from, you know, not only the physical violence and what we see in police terror or what's happening with imperialist wars, drone strikes worldwide, but also the violence of homelessness, of, of poverty in general. And so I think what we what I was trying to foreground at Spring Rising and I think that is really important is we have to locate the war at home, the race to the bottom, the war to drive down people's living standards, uh, the long term hollowing out of many majority black, poor, working class communities is really a part of a global offensive that started to take place as a result of the economic crisis of the 70s. You know, it was Democrats and Republicans, but I guess you could use the Reagan era maybe as your avatar. And on the one hand, you have this hollowing out of communities, this hollowing out of social programs. And on the other hand, you have this aggressive remilitarization, the 600 ship Navy, the dirty war in Central America and the propping up of people like Pinochet in Latin America, worldwide counter-revolution supporting South Africa and UNITA and Angola. And, uh, you know, in general, ramping up the, the, the nuclear deterrent and trying to crush the Soviet Union. And then, of course, the entire drive that we've seen in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, the unipolar world, U.S. hegemony, uh, the wars, you know, Iraq, Yugoslavia, Iraq again, Afghanistan, Libya. We could go on and on and on and on talking about what's happening. But it's a joint. It's the, it, it's two elements of the same piece. It's really this overall attempt to overcome the contradictions that were raised by the economic crisis of the 1970s for capitalism, the contradictions that were raised that were leading to a reduced profitability. So this drive to drive down the living standards of working people, to open up new areas of exploitation, and to use military force to solve all of the problems that arose from that, whether it's wars on an international scale, as we know from blowback, Afghanistan, why were we there? Or whether it's the the impact of social devastation in our communities with the police. So let's talk about the social devastation in our communities and what which ways is this kind of economic warfare happening and um and how does it relate to the military industrial complex? How is this exacerbated kind of in a post nine eleven world? Well, I think the way a lot of people put it is, is you know, just quite frankly, from a resources point of view. I mean, I saw uh, in the the conservative magazine, former newspaper, The Examiner, the other day, a figure they had uh, that I'm sure is conservative that just the top ten big ticket Pentagon items will take forty billion dollars a year, uh, starting in a, a few years in the future, to maintain each year, which I thought was unbelievable. At the same time, where you know, in Washington D.C., we're talking about a city where over 
over 60,000 people pay more than half of their income to housing, and we're struggling just to get $100 million into affordable housing. So everything from affordable housing to health care to education, student loans, any of these things are being significantly starved by the fact this money is going overseas. That's why Martin Luther King said the bombs that explode in Vietnam explode in our own communities. And I think that it goes a little bit deeper than that as as well. I mean, I think that when you look at what the, the 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 connection is between the two, you see that one is sort of the precondition of the other. I mean, it, it, when Thomas Friedman said McDonald's doesn't work without McDonald Douglas, you have this U.S. empire that was – you know, been in existence for a long time, but has been trying to dominate the entire world now and open up these whole new spheres for exploitation. And so the whole reason you have these deep social problems that exist, housing and so on in America, is that the entire system is predicated on, you know, driving people out of labor. You need fewer people to work, driving down wages for the people who are working, getting rid of pensions, getting rid of social programs. All of that is a part of also going overseas, opening up factories in Bangladesh, uh, looking for new markets for your goods in Nigeria, all these different pieces. All of this is part and parcel of the same system. And I think understanding that, that it's not really, uh, you know, oh, well, bad things are happening here and bad things are happening there and we're opposed to bad things, but that these things are all linked in an undercurrent way through one system of, of, of imperialism and that we're opposed to this empire, which has domestic and international ramifications. Um, when it comes to police brutality, I know that you've been organizing with D.C. Ferguson, um, and it's just always been interesting to me, kind of this rampant police unaccountability, how police can just murder people in the street and, you know, the grand jury system set up um, to be unaccountable as well. And they're just given pensions and, you know, taxpayer paid basically vacations and shit for doing this. But when you look abroad, I mean, the drone program. And this has been going on for decades, right? I mean, it's just out in the open now and codified, which is scarier, actually. But when we have a government that's codified extrajudicial assassinations abroad, why should we be surprised at all that the police are acting completely with unaccountability and just murdering people on the streets here if the government can say that it's okay to do that with brown people in the rest of the world? Well, I think we shouldn't be surprised. And I think we've seen the police have been killing people here for some time. I mean, you know, you go back to the Kerner Commission report about the uprisings in the 60s and it's linking to poverty and police brutality. I found uh, some incidences here in Washington, D.C., where we're having this conversation in the 30s of the National Negro Congress and other black organizations, the Communist Party, fighting against police brutality, police killings here in D.C. Then And so I think we shouldn't be surprised. And I think we shouldn't be surprised at all with what we've seen overseas, that there's been this normalization of extrajudicial killings. There's been a erosion of what I think a lot of people conditionally are traditionally thought of as democratic rights. And so, you know, at, at the end of the day, I guess we're just going to have to. I think also reframe our discourse to recognize that, that when we're talking sort of broadly uh, uh, about the, the, the police and what their role is, we have to talk about them in a similar way as the military. I mean, they're both sort of enforcers. They're the enforcers. Uh, it's the standing army and the police that allow this tiny elite to control this vast majority of the wealth. I mean, I think that it's ridiculous to look at these vastly militarized police forces and say anything other than it's the, the state which is backed by the big corporations trying to have a military response to a social problem.
problem. They've created all these issues through this devastation, and so they have to have this this police force to manifest it. Just as worldwide, they're, they're, they 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 bred Al Qaeda by the intervention in Afghanistan. The same thing with ISIS. The same thing with so many of these different issues. I mean, so many conflicts of uh, in Africa that go back to the coups and the colonial borders and all around the world. I mean, it's it's the the actions of the West that sort of stir up their own problems. And historically, when you go back, you can look at you know the lack of sovereignty, the the denial of self determination, the promotion of states like Israel and South Africa that have created so much of the turmoil that have existed in the world. And so you have to have this huge military to maintain stability, to keep people in power who you like, to make sure those who you can't rely on don't come to power, that people who are shaky stay in line. So in both positions, you have the military and the police as instruments of social control that are designed to uh, you know, keep a tiny group of people really on top of the heat. Yeah, and this is superseded nation states. I mean, this is a, a corporate conglomeration of basically CEOs, board members. Um, to exemplify your point, journalist Lee Fong recently published a phone call between a top bank analyst and his client, Lockheed Martin, where the analyst was concerned about the depression of weapons sales if there's a diplomatic deal with Iran. I mean, first of all, that just reveals so much about what these people, what these people really are thinking, protecting their bottom line. And, and just talk about Neil liberalism because I think neo neoconservatism obviously got a rightly bad rap with the Bush administration. I mean, it's disgusting um, ideology, but talk about what neoliberalism is and how this kind of all fits into this perpetuation of global destruction. Well, and you make a good point, and I think the piece about governments, I mean, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, the, the government is adapted to the system, and as the capitalist world market becomes increasingly globalized, as do the structures necessary to govern that market and to sit atop that market, I think that's what we've seen are happening. And I think what we see neoliberalism being is as the market became more and more interconnected on a worldwide basis and entered into a crisis in the 1970s, a crisis of profitability, it's often talked about uh, by radical and heterodox economists that neoliberalism writ large was the set of strategies into Instituted on a worldwide basis, starting with the opening shots of structural adjustment in Jamaica, the uh, IMF shock doctor in Chicago boys in Chile in the wake of the Allende coup and the murder of tens of thousands of leftists in Chile, and also in New York with the bankruptcy uh, and, and the restructuring there. You had this opening shot and you had this universal uh, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, the second uh, uh, term of Francois Minoran in France, uh, all of these these different forces where the the goal became to limit social services on the one hand, to drive down the power, collective power of the working class by weakening the unions and then weakening the traditional protections and wages and unemployment by putting the brakes on national liberation movements uh, around the world by a massive increase in military moves, looking for a complete full-spectrum dominance and defeat of any national liberation movement, socialist country, or independent nationalist formation in an aggressive war drive. And this unifying structure across Tokyo, London, Berlin, Washington axis, the Washington, the Western imperialist axis, if you will, 
Uh, that's what neoliberalism was, was a class strategy of the ruling elites, uh, of the key nodes of this worldwide capitalist structure attempting to restore and doing so somewhat effectively, uh, their, their, the vitality of their system, vitality being increased amount of profits going into their pockets. We always hear about how war affects Americans in the context of foreign policy in terms of, you know, the establishment rhetoric, but I, it's just so amazing because as an internationalist, I know that you are too. Why don't you think people care about how it's affecting the citizens of the countries the U.S. is just bombing and destabilizing. I mean, why does it always have to be about Americans? What is this kind of ethnocentrism and nationalism doing to hinder our understanding about neoliberalism and kind of this global empire and the way it works? Well, I think a lot of it is the extreme desensitization and, and racism that we we promote towards the global south where a lot of these things happen. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Answer Coalition I work with is, at work for, uh, work with is uh, the, the act now to stop war and in racism is so often is we have these essentializing categories of Arabs or Muslims and, uh, you know, Chinese or whatever it may be in this given day where there's a huge narrative that's constructed that has, I mean, I think that's a huge part of the mass propaganda apparatus of the elites in this country is to form these, first of all, the American exceptionalism piece, which is the key. I mean, it's really sort of, uh, you can't be a politician in America if you don't say America's the world's greatest country and everything about it is better than everything thing about every other country like which no one would ever really even admit was true under about five minutes of questioning uh even people who claim they believe it but the reality is is it's just you have to sort of cite chapter and verse and you know say your hail marys and cross yourself and everything and here you are you're in there with this patriotism uh the b2 bombers nuclear weapons you know, obliterating whole countries. That's what flies over the Super Bowl. And so it inculcates in people this feeling that uh, there is this other and this other is somehow, I don't want to say less worthy because obviously many people in America are very generous when there's earthquakes and things like that. We see mass outpourings of good feelings. So I think a lot of people, are their heart is in the right place. But the conception of what's going on over there makes it harder to even really understand how people live, the knowledge that we're starved in this country. I mean, I think if people knew a lot of the things that are, are going on in these places, they'd feel differently, but they, they don't have any real conception because of what they get in the schools and what they get in the media. And so it's easier, I think, for people's opposition to manifest itself initially as opposition to what they see is something that negatively affects their own life. So the challenge, I think, for internationalist organizers is to say, okay, fine, good. This is how you entered the door. However you get in, I get it. But now connect the negative thing that's happening to you to the negative thing that's happening to someone else. Like, for example, we're going to have here in D.C. soon something bringing together families of those killed in I or disappeared in Ayotzinapa and those killed by police violence here in the United States. So ability to build bridges and recognize the individual sufferings, but also recognize that this similar system is perpetrating sort of gre greater and lesser crimes all across the world. And that by unifying ourselves all across the world and recognizing and lifting up and empowering each other, that's what gives us the collective power to fight back. If the system is globalized, the struggle has to be globalized. I mean, that's why the classic slogan that the, the worker struggle, the people struggle has no borders is as true today as it ever was. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, it is. My biggest concern, obviously, is is empire, it's militarism, because I see, obviously, the siphoning of all these resources, and especially when it's um, founded on death and destruction and uh, destabilization of all these countries. Um, so, 
obviously that's my biggest fight, but I just feel like there's this paradoxical reality that the establishment, it's also a political tactic to make things as confusing and diluted and untransparent as possible. So people feel very defeated, disempowered, disengaged. Um, you know, Brian Becker, uh, another organizer with the Answer Coalition, was talking about how even though we feel very defeated sometimes, like our voices don't matter. Like, you know, sometimes even at Spring Rising, there was just a couple hundred people out there um, marching against against militarism. But there, w- there are moments in time where the anti-war movement can inject itself and really change the course of history. And this has happened multiple times. You never know when these moments are going to be. And that's goes back to Rosa Parks, right? I mean, it was organizing for months and months. Um, but that moment in time, it worked. Yes. Well, when when President Obama was getting ready to potentially bomb Syria after the alleged chemical weapons attack, where they had uh, crossed this you know arbitrary red line that had been set up, and he was going to come out and make this announcement in the Rose Garden, there was a demonstration sponsored by the Answer Coalition and, and other forces who came out, and we were in front of the White House on Lafayette Park picketing, and people were just chanting no war on Syria. And the press conference just wasn't happening. And so all of a sudden, we start to hear or see on Twitter journalists saying, well, the press conference isn't happening. And all you can hear in the Rose Garden are the chants of people saying no war on Syria, no war on Syria. And so they weren't able to have this press conference because they didn't want the president to speak to say all of this warmongering stuff while this is happening. And then when he finally ends up speaking, the big announcement everyone thinks is going to be war is, well, Congress is going to decide. Let Congress decide whether or not we go to war. And there was so much. And, and that was indicative. And that was just a small demonstration of a few hundred people. But it was indicative of this broader current of tens of millions of people. I mean, there was a massive amount of up, of, of, of opposition to the war in Syria. I remember Congressman Elijah Cummings, who is is from the D.C. area, the Baltimore area, saying that at his local grocery store, a dozen people came up to him and said, don't go to war in Syria. I mean, it was huge majorities of people. And so it became clear that that demonstration, the spirit of that demonstration, recognized that if the U.S. was to enter war into Syria, those demonstrations would grow and get larger and larger. And if the more American troops got involved, I mean, this is what's really... You know, people always say that the the people in America are war weary. I think that's a ridiculous way to put it. I think people are war savvy. They've seen what is happening in all of these interventions. And obviously, in the same way Vietnam War Syndrome constrained U.S. imperialism right now, this, you know, the most warlike moves ever, but no boots on the ground, no boots on the ground. It's like a, like a mantra, you know, this no boots on the ground, because it's clear to the establishment forces if they the more American troops are involved, the greater the chance that mass opposition is going to be waged because people don't want to be dragged down in some quagmire. And that's what that Syria demonstration represented, is that it was the tip of the iceberg of something big. And I think in the White House, they said, you know what, we're going to pass the buck on this one, because obviously this could be serious. And I think it just shows that you never know. I mean, in the in the introduction to the, the Little Red Song book, the IWW Little Red Song book, it says songs to fan the flames of rebellion. And I sort of feel that that is, is what those of us who are thinking there needs to be a revolution in this country to change things, whether you're already organizing or you're just listening to this and you just feel that way in your heart of hearts and you're in 
you know, I don't even know, Idaho somewhere, Utah, and it's conservative and you don't know. But in reality, what we are doing is just that, right? I mean, we're against this empire and there's a million ways that we can manifest our opposition against this empire. But in the same way that they're waging, you know, these battles against us and our brothers and sisters all over the world, uh, in every single way, we have to be able to fight back. So if they are, if we're going to be in the belly of the beast of this empire and they are, are around the world, people who are allied with us in similar struggles are looking to us to help them get some breathing room. Uh, you know, we have to be willing to to do this uh, this work of, of working against war, against militarism, against these wars, this solidarity movements. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in the good times and the bad times when it's Democrats or Republicans, this is really key work. Right. And um, of course, blowback is one of the main factors why people should be opposed against military intervention. Um you know, but many people still argue with me now about justification for whether it be dropping the nuclear bombs in Japan or bombing ISIS because of the genocide against the Yazidis, all this shit. I mean, the problem is that, you know, now we're bombing Syria. You know, it's a sovereign country. What is your response to the people who say that there is like military justification for certain humanitarian conflicts like ISIS and and the Yazidis? Well, I mean, I think they just have to look at the record. I mean, we went into Iraq and that was supposed to be humanitarian and it broke the country up and uh, turned it into a humanitarian nightmare. Syria, the uh, funding of a civil war was supposed to uh, you know, be for humanitarian causes to free people from an evil dictator. Dictator, it's a humanitarian nightmare. Libya, humanitarian nightmare. I think that around the world, every time you see these humanitarian interventions, it's this U.S. intervention that causes just as many uh, casualties. And I think you see the same thing often with a lot of these United Nations missions too. Just look at Congo and the destruction that's being wrought on the people of Congo that who are currently now being uh, oppressed, repressed by a neo-colonial government in their popular struggle. Friends of the Congo.org, people should check that out. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, these these interventions bring just as many problems because the US is not a disinterested actor. People say, oh well we're acting for humanitarian purposes, but in fact they're acting to to gain positioning. Because if what the United States did was governed by humanity, they wouldn't support governments like the Gulf monarchies. But the reality is, is it's not governed by humanity. It's governed by the self-interest of the elites who back the politicians and the whole political arena. And I think at the end of the day, we have to investigate the record of these humanitarian interventions. They aren't really successful. I mean, the thing about the Yazidis, the, the they had already been, uh, they had the, the soldiers from Kurdistan who had come and helped them. And then the U.S. just left because they said, well, we can't work with them because even though they're the indigenous force on the ground, because, you know, those are the, the our enemies. And so ultimately, there's not a record of these, these humanitarian interventions being anything other than a smokescreen for regime change. You're talking about the tools, how everyone can really utilize their hone in on their own passions and their soul and find out what they want to invest in. And, and, you know, how can how can people get the tools to really help? How can they pave their own part in the revolution of consciousness, values, changing the system, making their own? Well, I think there's a lot of ways. So I'll just give you one. I mean, I write for a website, liberationnews.org, and we also have liberationradio.org. We have now the Liberation School, which is an educational supplement. You can get to all of this from liberationnews.org. And it's going to you know, be something that I think at least can get you to start thinking in a different way, to see the conflicts of the world in, in, a, in an anti-imperialist lens, and 
to really get a greater understanding of the dynamics of the system. And I think it's only the first step. Uh, as Mark said, there's no royal road to science. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of studying and things that we all have to do and continue to do in creation of, of explanations and analyses of our current situation. But uh, that's one place you could start. Thank you so much. Eugene Perrier, organizer with the Answer Coalition, author of Shackled and Chained. Really appreciate your time, man. 